just a couple messages left in this series, which we began in the fall of 2020. And as we've said many times, going through a letter like this or a treatise like this, uh, we're in no hurry, especially when on every page we're seeing Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, uh, be made known to us. And that's, our, that's all of our, our life together. Following this series, I'm planning on doing a, a mini-series on the church and who, who and what the church is and meant to be. Uh, so stay tuned for that sometime uh, beginning mid, mid-August and probably continuing in through the first part of the fall. And then I've got a couple ideas about maybe jumping back into some, some books of, of the Bible to walk us through uh, going forward. So let's read from Mark chapter 16. This is the traditional end of the gospel according to Mark through verse 8, and that's what I'll read this morning. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone, for the stone is large? And looking up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled back. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. He was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. They were trembling, and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Four weeks ago, we left Jesus in the tomb. It's a good thing that we are not the authors of this story. Jesus was in the tomb for approximately 36 hours which is interesting because we think of him rising on the third day, which is a true statement. He was crucified on a Friday, sometime in the mid to late morning, for in the middle part of the day, darkness fell, we're told that. Before the Sabbath came, and for the, a new day would dawn at sunset. It's a little reversal for, for, for the Jewish culture. And as soon as the sun set, the end of a day happened, and therefore the beginning of a new day. So their Sabbath rhythm, which would be Saturday, uh, began at sunset on Friday. Jesus died relatively quickly, gave up his, his spirit, breathed his last, so that even Pilate was surprised that he had already passed. And we saw that Joseph of Arimathea came and asked for his body, was given his body, and they were able to prepare Jesus and place him in the tomb uh, likely before sunset, because at that point, Sabbath requirements would begin, no work could happen, no burials could take place. So Jesus is in the tomb on Friday, day one. Sunset happens, day two is all, all of Saturday. From that moment to sunset of the next day, 24 hours later, that's day two. He rose very early in the morning, prior, sometime prior to dawn, because we see the the women coming, verse 2, very early, just after sunrise. They're on their way. So they've, they've given the time of Sabbath. Uh, they could not come and, and, and anoint his body and bring more spices and perfumes, which would have been customary as an honoring thing to do. Uh, they came very early, as soon as they could come. That's what Mark would want us to see. As soon as they were able, they came. They were up prepared. But Jesus was already gone. So he was in the tomb for around 36 temporal 
hours. In typical Mark fashion, the account is abrupt, did you hear it, and succinct and to the point. And we've gotten used to that. That's Mark's style, unique to the other gospel writers. Even so, this account is rather jarring and sudden, isn't it? Even, even more so, especially the way that it ends. Now, there is an extended ending in most of our translations, and we'll get into that next week. Stay tuned. But this is the historical end of the gospel according to Mark. It just is sudden. And I've got some thoughts about that and some potentials, and others have as well. And so we'll dive into that next week. But if this is truly just the end, it is almost jarring how it could end so quickly. And I wonder if Mark, having proclaimed Jesus in his crucifixion and resurrection repeatedly, is simply matter of fact, to make that point. Now, we've seen three different times in, as Jesus is journeying toward the cross, toward Jerusalem, he, he, he tells exactly what's going to happen. So in Mark chapter 8, 31... He was teaching his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and teachers of the law, he must be killed, and after three days rise again. Jesus spoke plainly about this, but Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Mark 9, 31, one chapter later, he was teaching his disciples again, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men, they will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and they were afraid to ask him about it. A chapter later, Mark 10, 33, Jesus says, We're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. The very next passage, we see James and John coming to him saying, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask. His words didn't quite seem to sink in. So repeatedly, Jesus has been saying it will happen exactly as it is. We see the, the broader theme throughout Mark, the disciples even, and many others failing to grasp, failing to see, failing to comprehend, to walk by faith, to walk in trust, blinded to it, deaf to spiritual things. So when it comes to pass, exactly as Jesus said it would, we should not be surprised the disciples should not have. They should have been expecting it. They were not. But it's almost as if the way that Mark records it is simply saying, look, see, there you see. Verse 6, don't be alarmed. The young, the young man, who from the other accounts we know is angelic, there's hints to that here, but he's called a young, a young man. You are looking for Jesus. He was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? Now go. That's essentially, that's... Isn't that amazing? The, the defining event of our faith, the moment where all history turns, the, 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 the event and place and time where eternity finds its hope for those that do come into faith and are coming to believe, Mark describes in a few staccato sentences. Now, certainly the other gospel writers and accounts expand on that. There's much more given to the afterward events. But if we simply have Mark, we are left with some questions, and we're left with some surprise, I think. And I wonder if that's exactly what Mark is meaning for us, to say, do we not believe? Are we not ready? What happened? 
What will it take for us to believe, for, any, for anyone to believe? We have to kind of write the rest of the, the story, and we have to find ourselves in it. And that's been Mark's intention all the way through, that disciples of Jesus, or those that are drawing near to Jesus, or looking to him for something, which is all of us at various times, would ask that same question. Would I be any different than those in the story? What I have seen and perceived, do I see and perceive spiritual things today, or am I blinded to it? What does my discipleship, my followership of Jesus look like? How close am I, or have I distanced myself? Am I following at a distance as these women were? This is a pervasive theme throughout Mark that we would see and believe, and so often we don't. The religious leaders, even the disciples who had faithfully followed, struggle to comprehend, struggle to believe, have their incredible doubts and uncertainties. And that is both convicting when we see ourselves in them, but also encouraging when we know how the story goes. Jesus does not give up on them. At this point, all of the disciples have scattered and fled. Only the women remain. These few, where is everyone else? Not just one has betrayed Judas, but Peter himself denied and betrayed, and ultimately all of them rejected and fled from Jesus. Yet Jesus does not give up on them. He has a plan for them and a purpose for them. And so that brings us encouragement and hope amidst our conviction as we see ourselves in the story. The women who were coming to the tomb were faithful, but they were not expectant. We see that in the story. They were not expecting to find an empty tomb or to wait upon his, his, hey, it's the third day by our count. He could, he, could be, he could be rising at any moment. Let's be there to see that. No, they've come with spices, fragrant things to anoint the body, really to keep off the stench of a decaying body until as time would go, they would be able to entomb him in a different way. That was their custom. Now there's a large stone. How are we going to get in? We don't know, but we're prepared. Maybe there'll be someone that can help us. They're not expecting an empty tomb. They're not expecting him to be risen. In fact, they're, they're unsettled and they're fearful of what they see and what's being told to them by this young man. Verse 8, the way it ends, trembling and bewildered, the women went out, fled the tomb, said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. What would it take for them to believe? What will it take for the disciples to come to believe that he is risen if all we have is Mark, we know somehow these women overcame their fear or others came to experience the same reality. Now, we have more than Mark. We have the other accounts. These women did overcome their fear, and they would go, and they would proclaim that Jesus has, had risen. But we ask the questions as we see ourselves in this story, what will it take for us to truly believe, to believe the message that is suddenly uh, finished here in, a, in, a, in one verse, in one line. The whole story proclaims that the kingdom has come. The kingdom is a reality. And that kingdom has a king. And that king is Jesus. And that kingdom will prevail. It will endure. It will multiply throughout the world. Nothing will stop it. Not even oppression, opposition, evil, and death. For Jesus has triumphed over all. He has conquered evil and death in rising from the grave. 
not through force, but through even more powerful means, through love and through sacrifice. He gave himself for the kingdom and for all who would walk into the kingdom. His resurrection seals it. Had he remained dead, it might have been a worthy cause to follow the ways of Jesus. People could give their life to that cause, to choose love and service, grace and mercy, compassion and righteousness, rather than the ways of the world, of self-advancement, of power, of control, of self-centeredness. Someone might choose that as an alternative way of life and say that is a better way of living. But Jesus has done far more than offer a better way of living. He's offered the hope of eternal life in a kingdom of God, the upside-down kingdom that ultimately makes all things right. It reverses all things and makes them right and gives us the hope of eternal life. Do we believe it? This is the, the center point and dividing line of the faith of all who would become followers of Jesus, who would become Christians, little Christs. Are we resurrection people, believing in a resurrection God? And not just life after death, Many believe in that, but life through death. That is what Jesus proclaimed and taught. And they're very different things. A life after death believes in some form of eternity, and there's various beliefs out there in world religions that would believe in an afterlife of some form. Jesus taught life through death. In fact, it's the only path. Let me just for a moment talk about the distinction of being resurrection people following a resurrection God, which is life through death. The Apostle Paul taught that God was the author of all of life, and many believe this, but this was his entry point to who God truly is. In his sermon on Mars Hill in Athens, Acts 17, 28, the Apostle Paul said, God is not served by human hands as if he needs anything because he himself gives all humanity, life and breath and everything else. And many would believe in a divine power that is the author of life, the giver of life. But Jesus taught and showed us that true life comes through death, not just one day, but today, now for his disciples. We do believe in a coming day of life after death. Jesus taught on that in John eleven twenty five. Right before he raised Lazarus from the grave, a precursor to his own resurrection, he said to Lazarus' sister, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though they die. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Life in Jesus begins today. He is the resurrection and the life, and those who believe will never die. Now, Jesus is clearly speaking. He's bringing together both, both literal and figurative in the way he's proclaiming this, to make us wrestle with the now and forever, with the spiritual and the reality. In, in Jesus and in God's kingdom, through faith, life begins now as we die. This is what Jesus taught in Mark 8, 34. He was calling his disciples to him, and a crowd came as well. And he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. This is perhaps the 
essential teaching in Mark of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. Now, Jesus made it very literal when he took up his cross and died upon it. And for some of his followers, we're called to lay down our actual life. But here he is teaching something else. He's teaching a daily laying down, dying to self in order to take up the way of the kingdom of God, which is shaped by the cross. The cross represents death, death to self, death to my own way and my own will, that God's way and God's will would be known and expressed through me and the way that I live. The Apostle Paul taught this same thing in Galatians 2.20, his famous declaration, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Right? Paul is speaking of his present reality of faith in Christ. I have been crucified. The me that was has been crucified upon that cross with Jesus. And the life I now live, I live by faith in that Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For Christ lives in me. That was Paul's reality. And it's really not a one, one and only event. It's a daily walking in this way of, of Jesus, of death to self for life in the kingdom. For life forever begins today. God's eternal kingdom has come, and we can enter into it through faith. This is the gospel according to Mark. It's what he's been pro proclaiming on every chapter. Yes, there's a future hope of salvation and eternal kingdom coming in fullness but Mark's primary emphasis is on the today reality of following Jesus, of knowing him, of walking as saved people, whole, healed, right, renewed. That's the gospel according to Mark. Jesus has been teaching this throughout and revealing it in many ways, and now it's confirmed in the resurrection. Our God is eternal and alive and he has made us in that same image. We bear the same marks to be eternal beings with God, to be made alive. When we, when we hold that as a lens, it shapes all the rest of the story, all of the Hebrew scriptures and all of the Greek scriptures. It's the way the whole story begins for a reason, that we are made in the image of God to be with him forever. That shapes how we read everything. We start to see God as the giver of life and the resurrection God, life through death, on every page of Scripture. Here's some highlights. I've covered this before. It was a couple months ago, so probably a good refresher. In the creation story, God brings life and flourishing and abundance out of barrenness and seeming nothingness. He brings life through nothingness. And the narrative's stories continue that theme throughout. We could look at the flood narrative that brings new life from death, renewal, beginning again. And the sign of that renewal was an olive branch. The sign of new life, a new shoot, was the promise of God's renewed faithfulness to his people and new life through death. God brought a promised son to Abraham and to Sarah at a very old age. As old as dirt, as old as death, 
a barren womb. There should not be life there. God brought forth life, the promised seed, and that would be in the lineage of Jesus. He would do the same for Rachel, who would bring forth Joseph, who was a primary archetype of Jesus. At the time of Israel's enslavement in Egypt, God delivered them through a death, through the death of a lamb, the Passover lamb. And that blood that covered their door frames and their houses through faith brought them life, through death, life. The entire sacrificial system that God established then in their wilderness wanderings at that first tabernacle and later the temple, there was life through death. The death of these innocent animals was a symbol of the life and the renewal of covenant that God was bringing to them. Resurrection is within these symbols. And those two symbols, the Passover lamb and then the sacrificial lamb or the atoning sacrifice, become the primary precursors and analogies of what Jesus was doing upon the cross as he was fulfilling the story of redemption, of reconciliation, and even of resurrection. It was far more than simply a life after death. It was life through death that God was proclaiming. Throughout the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures, the prophets use this kind of imagery and language for what God was doing. The prophet Ezekiel famously speaks of God giving new hearts of flesh in place of hearts of stone, right? Life in place of death. Breathing life into dry bones. Raising again his people. These images are replete throughout scripture. And we're just, just scratching the surface. We can even see it beyond the scriptures in creation itself, in nature. We experience it every springtime as new life finds a way, pushes its way through what look like dead branches of deciduous trees or the frozen earth with new buds and new flowers to be signs of the coming harvest or the coming fruitfulness. Seeds must, in our eyes, fall to the ground and die in order to bring forth life. Jesus even used that imagery and that analogy in John 12, 24. He said, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Speaking of the way of God and certainly pointing to his own death and resurrection. So do we believe it? Are we coming to believe it? Are we resurrection people following a resurrection God? That's all of our reality of faith. That's a journey. It's a process. The women that were coming certainly struggled to believe. But they were there. They were there. And because they were there, they're given the opportunity, the honor and the privilege of ultimately becoming the first apostles of the risen Lord. The term apostle in scripture can be used as a more proper name as other, other words in the, in the scriptures and in Greek can be, but it simply means a sent one, a, someone like an ambassador who is sent with a message. So these women are given the opportunity to become the first apostles to proclaim to the men that Jesus has raised. Why? Because they are present. They had distanced themselves. In the previous chapter, it says the, some of these same women were watching from a distance the crucifixion. 
Maybe it's as, cl- as close as they were allowed to be. Where are the other disciples? Where are the men? They're nowhere to be found. It's these women who are present, who are drawing near, who are coming and are given an incredible honor. In that culture, as probably many of us are aware, there is just a lot of, a lot of oppression against women. A woman's testimony on her own couldn't even stand in court. She needed her husband or a man or a relative to confirm, to give it any kind of weight. So maybe that's a part of the reason for their fear and their uncertainty as they're wrestling with their own faith and do we, will we believe this? But if we go and proclaim this message, will people believe us? Why would they? What kind of testimony is that? What will they think of us? Perhaps that's one of the reasons for their fear and their uncertainty. As mentioned, and according to Luke, Luke chapter 24, verse 9, these women did overcome their fear and their uncertainty. They came back from the tomb and they told these things to the 11 and to the others. This is Luke 24, 9 and following. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them told this to the rest of the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. No one at this point still was expecting for Jesus' words to be fulfilled, that he would rise again. One of the major themes throughout Mark that is reinforced here with these women being honored and elevated, becoming true disciples, in some ways becoming the first true disciples, now that he has died and risen again. The last and least likely ones throughout Mark are the ones that often express the greatest faith become the truest disciples. The ones who held the privileged positions, the religious leaders and rulers, even the disciples themselves who had the inside track and the inside look at all of that Jesus did and taught are often the ones that don't believe at all, that struggle, that reject, that renounce. Did you notice Mark's subtle jab at Peter in the story? I mentioned this a number of weeks ago. The young man says to the women, go and tell the disciples and Peter. It could also be translated, even Peter. Go and tell the disciples, even Peter. For we know that Peter had renounced Jesus, had called down curses from heaven saying, I never knew the man. I'm not one of him. I'm not one of the disciples. Doesn't get much worse than that. Amazing grace is being extended by God by Jesus, through this angel, through this messenger, that God is not done with the disciples. Go and tell them. He's calling them back. He's going to give them a chance to begin again, to renew their faith, to believe in him and to believe in the resurrection. Even Peter. Amazing grace is being extended, and I hope we see ourselves in the story as we have throughout that we're the last and least likely ones, that the message has come to us, that God has pursued us and is not done with us, no matter who we are or what we've done or failed to do. We have doubted and dismissed and distanced ourselves from God and from Jesus many times, in many ways, perhaps even this morning. Perhaps even as we wrestle again with this text, which may be familiar to many or all of us, we are asking ourselves, do I really believe in life after death? Do I really believe in life through death? 
that Jesus was dead and breathed again? Well, I order all of my life around that belief. That's a significant, massive thing. It's fair to have doubts. We're in good company. Will we walk by faith today? Will we take another step of faith today to receive the call that he extends to all of his disciples? Go and tell the disciples, even Peter. Maybe you're the even Peter today. For even you have an opportunity to come back to Jesus, to renew your faith. That's incredible grace and mercy. The opportunity for confession and repentance is open to all of his disciples, even to Peter, for restoration, renewal, to start again, new life through death. Jesus had called them once, and they left everything to follow him. At the time of his arrest, we saw, ironically, they left everything to flee him. Right? The one young man who ran away naked left everything to flee him. It's not to be lost on us. And here's Jesus calling again to begin again, to be renewed again. He knows of their doubt. He knows of their betrayal. And he goes in pursuit of them. And he invites others to become apostles of this incredible news, this good news. We're all like the prodigals who have gone from the father. Luke chapter 15, when the prodigal son returns, the father has been watching for him, leaps up, runs to him, while the son tries to prepare his speech of confession. Not not a bad heart for what he had done, but he falls to his knees to start to confess, to almost to beg for his father. His father will not let him. This is the picture of God to you and to me as we return. We might be dragging our feet or wondering what to say or how we could be accepted. The Father runs to us, embraces us, lifts us up as we begin our confession. And there's a right time for confession. It's good. It's right. It expresses our heart. Repentance is a gift. It's a turning from the direction we were going, saying, what was I thinking? What was I doing? That's not the way of life. God, Jesus, you are the way of life. I'm turning to you again. That's repentance. That's a gift. In the story, the father raises up his son and won't let him speak as he begins to beg for a position as a servant. Stop. No. We celebrate. He throws the robe on him. He clothes him. He brings him in and prepares the feast. And what does he say? For my son was dead, but now is alive. Life through death. We've all walked in the way of death. Perhaps even recently, we're walking in the path of death. Will our end of our story be, we were dead, but we are now alive? Will we willingly come and and put to death that way of life? Say, Jesus, crucify that. May I remain with you. May I dwell with you forever. And he delights in us. This is who our God is, the resurrection God. Life through death, like being born Again, I think we need this reminder today. I think we need the reminder every day as we walk by faith, one step at a time often, one day at a time. Would we be humbled by our unfaithfulness as we see 
ourselves in the story, but amazed by his grace, receiving his forgiveness and mercy, and in his power, becoming again true disciples, given the opportunity to be apostles, ambassadors, sent ones to proclaim the message of the resurrection God and the resurrection Lord, the King of Kings, to a world that is mired in fear, in evil, in death. We're invited. Would we come? Let me pray for us, and then Catherine and David and Brett can come and lead us in response. Jesus, we thank you. Jesus, would you forgive us? Jesus, help us. Jesus, be with us. Jesus, go with us. Amen.